And I'm going to read from verse 3 to 13. This is 2 Kings 22, 3 to 13. You can turn there if you want, or you're welcome to just listen. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house unto the carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought the king the word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work and that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the scribe and Asiah, a servant of the king's, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto us all that which is written concerning us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a book, and we thank you that we have that book and that we can read it and hear it and study it. Father, we ask that as we study your word together, that you would help us to hearken unto it, that we would not just hear it, but that we would heed it, and that we would follow your words, and that we would commune with you and hear from you and then follow you. We pray that you would help us this morning as we study that you would give us insight and understanding, not just so that we would have more knowledge, but so that we would follow you and treasure you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are uh, interested in going to the Museum of the Bible, we have solidified some of the details of that trip. So there is a new sign-up at the Welcome Center that is now no longer just to express that you're interested, but it is now to express your commitment. If you want to go to the Museum of the Bible uh, over the next week or two, you don't have to tell us today, 
But over the next week or two, uh, please let us know for sure if you can come because we have to book things uh, early. Uh, so we're going to go on the trip, Lord willing, on March 21st. Um, and there's other details about the trip uh, out there at the Welcome Center. So please check that out if you're interested in going. If you would like uh, recordings of this class, you can sign up for those recordings where we sign up uh, to get a copy of the sermon. So just put the date for the Sunday school class you're interested in and then just make a note next to it saying uh, that you're interested in Sunday school, uh, in the Sunday school recording. So we've begun uh, by looking at this question, the, the class, how did we get our Bible? And we've begun the class. Uh, we're going to have three sections to the class. And right now we're focusing on answering that question uh, biblically and theologically. We're looking at the Bible to say, what does the Bible say about itself and about how we got that Bible? Uh, so over the first two weeks, uh, we've looked specifically at the origins of the Bible and then the nature of the Bible, or the qualities of the Bible. So when we've talked about the origins of the Bible, we've talked about how the Bible is a uniquely divine and human product. Ultimately, Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is inspired by God. And that means that the Bible is written in such a way that what is written here is God's words to us. And as such, the Bible is our final authority for how we should, what we should believe and how we should live because God is our ultimate authority and this is his word. And because this is a divine human product, that's an encouragement for us because God has not spoken in a way that we can't understand. He hasn't put his message in the stars. He's spoken to us in our language and so we can truly know him. That's an encouragement in a world where a lot of people think that maybe God does exist, but if he does exist, you can't really know him. No, we as Christians believe we, we can know him. He has revealed himself to us, and he's done so with words, with human words. And so the Bible, the origins of the Bible are that it is a divine and human uh, product. And then when we turn to look at the, the qualities or the nature of the Bible, we talked about how because the Bible is God's speech and God cannot lie, that the Bible is wholly truthful in all that it addresses. And that because it is fully truthful, that means that it's also trustworthy. God's word is not going to steer us wrong. We can rely totally on what God's word says. And we talked about how this doesn't merely extend uh, to what we should believe, but it's also totally reliable when it tells us history, when it tells us people's names, when it tells us events or things that have happened. So God's word is, is true and it's trustworthy. It's, and the, the big theological words for that are that it's inerrant and it's infallible. Today, uh, we're beginning something of a, of a transition. We're still going to spend time giving biblical and theological answers to this question. Uh, but this is the last lesson that we're going to spend uh, answering questions in this format, in, in doing it in a biblical and theological way. And today, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about its original writings and about how it has been preserved. And again, we're going to look at this from a, a kind of a theological perspective. But this lesson is transitional because the Bible does not speak, as we will see, very directly about the topics of the original writings or about uh, how it was preserved. So we're going to try to go as far as scripture takes us 
And then next week, we're going to pivot to look more fully at at the Bible's story. So we're going to start with the Old Testament. We're going to ask, how do we get the Old Testament? And then we'll walk our way in the coming weeks through the New Testament and see how it was recorded and written down for us. Uh, It's also at this point of the story that we have to look biblically and theologically at two things uh, that can sometimes be a bit tricky. And so I've called these two things in your handout, thing one and thing two. Uh, So I'm borrowing from, you know, Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat, thing one and thing two, uh, come in and and, uh, present some challenges for the main characters. I can't even remember the main characters' names. I know the cat, but I don't know if the kids have names. Um, Some of you know what their names are. That's great. (laughs) But for now, I want to talk about thing one and thing two. I'm going to appropriate that, and I'm going to explain what thing one and thing two are for our purposes this morning. So thing one is this. We do not have the original manuscripts. We don't have them. That's thing one. And thing two is this. We have thousands of copies of those originals, and that's a good thing. But no two of those copies agree with one another 100%. So that's thing one and thing two. And we're not going to say all that we need to say about those two things this morning. But we need to be aware of those two things as we go through this morning. So I'm going to put those out there, and I'm going to refer back to them uh, as we go along. And, and, and as we go through the class uh, in the coming weeks, we'll talk more about them and give them a more full treatment that they deserve. Another thing that I'll just say about this morning is, is I'm going to try as best I can to, f- to fly fairly high. There are a lot of, there's like a network of rabbit trails under this topic. And uh, I, I'm prepared to address and talk about some of those rabbit trails. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to fly fairly high and then see what kind of rabbit trails you want to chase, okay? So be thinking about if there's a particular question or a topic that you want to address, Uh, I'll pause for questions maybe more than I have in the past, hopefully, and you can kind of say, hey, let's let's look at that rabbit hole, uh, and we'll try to address it as best we can, okay? So that's the plan for this morning. I'm going to return once more to our statement of faith, and I've provided it for you in the handouts, uh, because our statement of faith references uh, one of the topics that we need to address this morning. Our statement says, we believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. So, our statement of faith clarifies that we understand these doctrines that we've been talking about, about inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility, to apply in an absolute sense to the original writings. This means that we understand that It was what was first written down by the original authors that was the very words of God. Those documents in an absolute sense that were without error, completely truthful, and completely trustworthy. And we believe that inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility, all these qualities, apply to every copy, translation, version, and edition in a relative sense. That is to say that our Bibles have these qualities in relation to the originals. Our Bibles are inspired, inerrant, and, infallibility to the de- and infallible to the degree that they reflect what was originally written. And again, we're going we're gonna to keep revisiting uh, this idea, but I want to say now, uh, just to, to head off any concerns uh, that might arise, 
that we have a remarkably high degree of confidence that our Bibles do reflect what was originally written, okay? Thing one and thing two are not real problems for the Christian. They're not significant problems for us. Some people would say that they are, but they're not. And we'll talk more about why in the coming weeks. But we can, we can truly say, I just want to say this up front, we can truly say we have the word of God. So we'll talk, we'll talk more about this and as we go. The original writings, uh, they're, sometimes called, uh, they're sometimes called autographs, the autographs, what was first written, are uh, properly speaking what God inspired. And we have to acknowledge that the Bible doesn't say too much about those original documents, and that's interesting. Um, much of what we can say about those original writings, we can infer from stories or from some things that the Bible says about itself. So what I want to do now is I want to just try to make a, a, some theological observations and some observations from history about, specifically about the original writings. So Paul says, the first thing I want to know is that Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, this very important passage that we're familiar with, he says there that all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. And uh, Peter says, Peter tells us that the authors were moved by the Holy Spirit. But we need to recognize that not everything that Paul wrote, not everything that Peter wrote, is in our Bibles. Uh, and we don't need to conclude that everything that Peter or Paul or any of the other biblical authors, not everything that they said or wrote was inspired. What was inspired is what they wrote down that we have in our Bibles. But we know, for instance, just talking about Peter for a little bit, and Peter gets picked on about this sometimes, Peter, right, uh, sometimes he denied Christ. Or even after he was working as an apostle preaching, we know that he had to be confronted by Paul because the things that Peter was teaching and promoting was distorting the gospel. So Peter, it's not as if the situation is that, that God had anointed Peter in such a way that anything Peter said or wrote was inspired. Uh, but certain things that he wrote were inspired. And it is the, the writings, those specific writings, that have those qualities. But another interesting thing is that the New Testament authors also understood that copies and translations of the original writings were also authoritative and carried the qualities that we've been talking about. So the apostles, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, they are talking, they're quoting the Old Testament, but they're quoting a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But they're not afraid to say that this is what God said. They're quoting a translation and saying, God said this. Uh, and so a translation, inasmuch as it's reflecting what was originally written, still carries those qualities. It is still God's word. It doesn't, it's not diminished uh, because it's been translated into another language. So this is one reason that we too, just like the New Testament authors, could quote a translation and say this is God's word. We can quote a translation and say this is God's word word. When we look at the Bible's history, so we're, we're pivoting a bit here, when we look at the Bible's history and think about what does is, what is the Bible's story tell us about those original writings, we also find some very fascinating things. As far as we know, uh, this is a real question, who, who was the first person to write down scripture? Who's the first person to write down scripture, to write God's words down? 
Moses is a very good answer. And Moses is the one who wrote down the first five books of the Bible. Moses tells us of another instance, and we presume this is before Moses wrote, when God's words were written down. Does anybody remember what that could be? It happened on a mountain. Yeah, who said that? God, yeah, yeah. So in the Ten Commandments, God uh, gave Moses two tablets on which the law was written. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting. You know, God, God seems to be, as best we can tell, again, we don't know with 100% certainty, and you all answered very well with Moses. You're right. Um, but it seems like God is the first one to, to write down Scripture. Uh, the, there are passages that say this was written with the finger of God, and it was given to Moses, and God's words were on those tablets. But then it's very interesting what happens in Exodus 32, it's, uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. So this is the, you know, the first of the first, the first original autograph of scripture written by God himself. And we don't know exactly how he wrote this down. If you ever saw uh, the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, I think the way that God did it there is that God was in a whirlwind of fire and he kind of zapped the stones, but we don't know uh, exactly how that happened. But however it happened, I mean, just imagine what that would be like. You know, I, you guys know I, I love books. To have a first edition of something is a, is a treasure, right? I mean, it's valuable. Imagine having those two tablets in your hands that were the writing of God. What happened to those tablets? Yeah, yeah, Moses goes down the mountain, and here's what it says in just a few verses later in Exodus 32, 19. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. Oh, he, he broke them. He broke the first edition. He broke those tablets that God had written on. Now, I don't think this is merely, uh, you know, Moses having a temper tantrum. Uh, you know, I don't think that Moses lost control. I, I think, obviously, he's, he's angry. I think there's a, a righteous indignation that he's got there. And I, I think that what he's doing is, I think he's even um, giving kind of a, a, an illustration of what the people have done. God has spoken, and they've broken his law. And so God's word is shattered and broken, just as the people have broken God's law. This is also interesting because it shows that the original tablets, the original writings, they were important, but not indispensable. Another copy was made, and that copy was then placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. First uh, Kings 8-9 tells us this, and Hebrews 9-4 tells us that. And uh, so we see a, a bit more about this uh, throughout the Bible story, that, that when Scripture was written, it was put uh, with the Ark. But this is helpful for us, right? Because there are some, uh, there are some religions, some approaches to spirituality that uh, venerate or honor objects, right? You can go some places in the world and people say, oh, this is a piece of the cross or this is the shroud that Jesus was wrapped up in. Um, and I, I presume that if somebody thought that they had 
those original tablets or if they had what Paul first wrote, that a lot of people might treat that the same way. And scripture just does not teach us uh, to venerate objects like that, to honor objects like that, even what was originally written, right? That doesn't mean, just because Moses went around and broke them, doesn't mean they weren't important. They were important and copies were made, but they were not indispensable. They were not um, ultra-spiritual things that would get you closer to God just by having access to them, like some people would treat relics. Um, it seems that when, uh, well, I already mentioned that, you know, so in Deuteronomy 31, 26, it talks about how the book of the law, when it was written, it was put with the Ark of the Covenant, and we, we can see that it was kept there because when, as we read earlier in 2 Kings 22, when uh, Josiah sends scribes to go to the temple, uh, they found the book of the law, and they found it in the temple, and so that's where uh, scripture uh, was kept. But if they were keeping scripture uh, near the Ark of the Covenant, and even keeping those tablets in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, as we go through the Bible story, what happened to those documents that were written and kept in the temple? Does anybody just think through the Bible story? What, what happens to the stuff that's in the temple? Yeah, yeah, it's taken during the captivities, right? So in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 18 and 19, it records how the Babylonians attacked. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. And it says, All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, uh, he brought them all to Babylon. And then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. And they burned all the fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all the valuable articles. Um, and then when the stuff comes back in Ezra chapter 1, uh, there's no record of the ark coming back. And uh, it's another story. We can talk about this if, if you want to, but for now I'm going to skip it. But there's interesting theories out there. There are some uh, historical writings that some people think that Jeremiah went and hid the ark in a mountain uh, before the Babylonians attacked. And some people uh, think that you know, the, the ark and the writings just went missing during the captivity. We don't, we don't, and in the end, we don't know for sure. But um, God, in his providence, allowed those things to be lost to us, those original writings. Uh, he could have preserved them. He could have protected them. He certainly could have done that, uh, but he chose not to. And so regarding the Bible's perspective on the original writings, we can say that they were very important, treasured, kept in the temple, kept with the ark, but uh, they were not indispensable. And so that's a I, I, those are the two big ideas that I want us to take away from what the Bible has to say about what was originally written. So I want to pause here and ask if you have any questions or, or want to chase any uh, rabbit trails uh, from that conversation. Then we'll turn to look at preservation. Yeah, Chuck. So I would say that, that all of those qualities, um, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility, uh, Chuck's question was, is, inerrance, is inspiration in the originals and authority in the copies, is that accurate? Is that what you said? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the, the most straightforward way that I could articulate that is to say that um, what was originally written uh, was the very words of God, and all of those doctrines apply in an absolute sense to those. And because Scripture is God's word, it is authoritative. And to the degree that our copies, translations, editions reflect what was originally written, and they do by and large, uh, then they carry all the same qualities. Um, so I have no hesitation about talking about God's word being inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Yeah, yeah, Jim. Yeah, yeah, that could be. I didn't look up those particular verses, but yeah, that may be. Yeah, that Moses wrote the the second copy. Yeah, uh, yeah, Bob. Yeah, so that might be a good transition into talking about preservation. So, so Bob was making a comment that that some uh, believe that translators were also inspired. Is that what your comment was, Bob? What's that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, from a, a biblical perspective, we would, uh, I think, what we see in Scripture is that inspiration uh, applies to the original authors. We don't see it extending beyond that. Uh, into people who are copying it or into people who are translating it. So we don't see in Scripture it being taught that inspiration extends that far. Yeah. So, but let's pivot and, and start talking about preservation. So what does the Bible say, uh, again, kind of just from a theological perspective about how God's Word was preserved? So I want to, we can look at what the Bible taught and then we'll look at a little bit of the Bible's history. So most of what the Bible uh, teaches about preservation of the biblical texts as such uh, is a bit indirect. So there's lots that the Bible has to say about God's, about God's word and about the permanence of God's word. Uh, and those things apply then indirectly to the, the actual scripture that is written. So for instance, many, many passages <clears throat> speak about how God's word will never fail. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withereth the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And this, this passage is quoting First Peter, uh, is, all, is quoted in First Peter uh, 23 and 25. And in both of those texts, you know, it's, it's referring to the, the good news, the good promises that God gives. Uh, it's, and it's uh, not necessarily uh, a reference to all of written scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But it does tell us about the character of God's speech. Right? So this is good news for the exiles in Isaiah's day and good news for the exiles in Peter's day that God's promises are going to come to pass. They're being oppressed and afflicted by the world, um, but God's promises will not fail them. God's promises cannot be stopped. We can perish, but God's words cannot perish and God's words cannot be stopped. And there are other passages that talk similarly about this. There are some, though, that do seem in context to be talking specifically about uh, written scripture. So, for instance, uh, in Psalm 119, uh, Psalm 119 is, is all about God's word. And in Psalm 119, verse 152, it says, Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. 
And in Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So in the, in the context of what uh, David is talking about there in that psalm, it, it does seem to be a reference to the written law um, and about how the written law will endure forever and God's word will endure forever. So theologically, then, we can see that God's word will come to pass. His promises, all of his promises are true and that that principle extends to uh, God's written word. At the same time, we need to be careful not to overinterpret some of these texts to mean that God's word will be preserved in a, a specific form or a specific manuscript or version, because the passages just simply don't go that far. And even if they did, they don't give us guidance about which one uh, God might have preserved his word in. And again, we're going to talk more about manuscript tradition and, and how those things are sorted through in future lessons. But for now, just simply recognizing that Scripture doesn't go as far as to say that God's Word is going to be preserved in that particular document. Um, and it doesn't give us uh, principles for identifying which one that would be. These passages also don't teach that uh, Scripture would be preserved without the possibility of copying or translation mistakes. At one level, this is, this is fairly obvious, right? Like, you can misquote scripture. I can misquote scripture. Like, we, we can misquote scripture. And, and in a similar way, when scripture is being copied, uh, we can make mistakes. One of the assignments that I had when I was in college, uh, I, I took a class on Daniel and Revelation, and one of my assignments was to hand copy the book of Revelation. And uh, I made mistakes in hand copying the book of Revelation. And that's just, it's possible. Um, and uh, it's important to recognize first, we need to recognize that first, because I don't think the Bible demands that, right? When we study the Bible, it doesn't demand that, that inspiration, for instance, or that inerrancy extends to every person that copies it. But again, this is also important to recognize because of thing two uh, that we talked about earlier, that no two copies that we have agree 100%. Copying a manuscript is, is really hard, and sometimes copies... Uh, were made by scribes, even who had very careful rules. We'll talk about how they did this. Um, but even with all of the careful principles that they had for copying, mistakes were still made. Um, I want to try to show you one, if it's going to work here. I'm going to have to sign in. Uh, what I want to show you is a document from the Museum of the Bible. Can you guys see this? Okay, this is called the Aleppo Codex. This is an old copy of the Hebrew Old Testament. And this, was, this document is one of the most steady and reliable Hebrew manuscripts that we have. The community that copied this was very, very careful. Uh, you can see these three main columns, and in between those columns you can see uh, some of these notes, like it's highlighted right here in yellow for you, one of them. Uh, and these notes in the margin uh, were sometimes made uh, by the scribes to try to help clarify what they thought was going on in the text. So this is a, a note that's on the display there at the Bible Museum. It says that this note in the margin instructs the reader to say the word court instead of what's actually written, which is the word city. So although the words court and city do not sound or look alike in English, in Hebrew, only one letter separates these terms, and the context favors the court 
as the original wording in this passage. So what you can see the, the scribes are doing is what's written here is the word city. That's actually what's in the text. But they're just making a note in the margin saying this is, this is probably the word court uh, is probably what should be read here. So all that to say that the copyists realize that they think at some point what is in their text uh, was changed just a little bit. Um, not for any malevolent reasons, but just be, as a copying error. And so they made that note. Um, and those kinds of things can happen uh, in copying scripture. It can even happen today. So here is a modern translation. This is Joshua chapter 3. Can anybody see? Uh, I realize this might be too small for some of you to see. Can anybody see the error? Look towards the bottom. Yeah. You see right here, I can't really highlight it, I don't think, but right here is a hyperlink. In this, this is a printed copy of a modern translation and it's got a hyperlink, the fifth line up from the bottom about the New York Times. Um, the New York Times didn't exist when Joshua was writing. Um, this, is a, this is just a, a, a publishing error, a printing error. Uh, those kinds of things uh, can happen uh, when scripture is copied. Um, and even today, with all of our modern technology and spell check, uh, it can still happen. You probably see these things when you're reading the newspaper even. Uh, and they have editors carefully looking over those things. This also, uh, the, these, uh, scripture also does not eliminate the possibility of there being bad translations, right? So there are some translations out there uh, that I could not recommend to you. Uh, so we shouldn't simply assume that any translation is going to be perfect um, simply because uh, God has promised to uh, preserve his word and give his word to us. So historically speaking, we see that in scripture that God preserves his word through his providential work, through his people being committed to translating that word from one generation to the next. Uh, so God's word has always been central to God's people. Uh, they were to meditate on it day and night, Joshua 1, Psalm 1. Uh, parents were to teach God's word to their children, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, God's word was the treasure of God's people. They considered it their spiritual nourishment. Priests and scribes studied the biblical text and copied it. And as a function of that centrality, the people were committed to reading God's word and hearing God's word read to them. Each king, in Deuteronomy 17, each king, the first thing a king was supposed to do was what? copy the law. That's what the king did. He made his own copy. Um, and Paul, I love this, you know, Paul's about to die in 2 Timothy 4. He knows his life's being poured out, and he, he tells Timothy, make sure you get the, the books sent to me, the parchments, and he's, he's probably talking about scripture. Um, so historically, then, God's word is, is transmitted through the copies that were read, heard, studied, meditated on, memorized very carefully, um, in the context of the believing community, in the home, and personally. So, so in this way, the, the preservation of the Bible, uh, I think a helpful way of thinking about how the Bible was preserved, is I think it's, it's almost analogous to how God has preserved the church through the centuries. Right? Christ has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, we have that promise that God will preserve and protect his people. Uh, but God has not done that through a formal institutional line of succession, right? So this is what the Roman Catholic Church would say to us, that 
that were out of order uh, because the Roman Catholic Church has a formal institutional line of succession of popes that goes all the way back to Peter, which is authorized by Christ. Uh, and we understand that Christ didn't preserve his church that way. Uh, we don't think that his promise in Matthew 16 to build the church, and even Peter's role in that, we don't think that that means that the church is going to be preserved in that formal institutional line. Rather, God has preserved the church through his providence, through, state, through times of uh, great spread and fruitfulness, and also through times of persecution. Um, so uh, what I want to read, I'm going to read a, a brief statement from the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy again, because I think it helpfully ties these things together, and then if you have any questions, uh, we'll field a couple questions before we conclude. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy says this uh, in Article 10. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. They say, on the other hand, we deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. So it's, it's not a problem for us that the autographs are missing. They say, we further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or uh, irrelevant. So I have some applications there towards the end, but, but I'm, I'm actually going to pause just to see if, if you have any questions or want to chase uh, any of the, the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for looking that up and reading it. Yeah, Judy. Yeah, yeah, very good. So Judy's mentioning the passage in Revelation 22 that talks about not adding to or taking away from God's word, right? And uh, what I think we see in that instance that I gave you from the, the Aleppo Codex where they make that note in the margin, I think that reflects that, that kind of attitude of wanting to be careful not to, uh, not to take away from Scripture or to add to it. Uh, one of the applications that I've got listed down there is that because of thing one and thing two, that what we should aim for as Christians and biblical scholars are aiming for this is they're aiming for what was originally written uh, by the biblical authors. And so we'll talk about, you know, in some of our translations, it seems like there are some, there are some verses or passages that have been taken away or have been added to. Um, and so we need to grapple with that and figure out what's going on there, uh, right? And the goal, the goal in those instances is to figure out what did John write? What did Paul write? Uh, that's the goal because that's what was originally written. Um, 
something else that's interesting, and we'll pick up on this uh, next week. We need to dismiss, um, but I'll just use this as a transition into next week. Something that's fascinating uh, is you have the same kind of warning not to add to or take away uh, from God's word. You have that in another place. You have it in Deuteronomy. And it's interesting that Joshua then shows up and adds to it. Well, why does he do that? Uh, he, you know, it doesn't, when, when Moses finishes, he says, don't add to or take away from God's word. And then Joshua continues to write. And scripture continues to get written. We don't believe that the first five books are all that there is. Um, and so we have to wrestle with him. What, what does Moses mean uh, there? And um, so we'll wrestle with that starting next week as we look at how was the Bible story written and recorded. We're going to start with the Old Testament. We'll start at the beginning and work our way through the end of Revelation in the coming weeks. Let me pray, and then uh, we will be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, give us uh, understanding and insight now as we, as we listen to your word preached. We long to hear your word to us. We know that it is good for us, it is best for us, and that it is our spiritual nourishment. And so we want to hear that word. So please give us ears to hear and give us hearts to follow after you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You are